Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Thank you, Cheryl, for that marvellous reading. It's a bit of a marathon, that one. Well done. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Paul writes that all your scripture is breathed out by you and is able to lead us to salvation in Christ. As we, enter, as we encounter your word in Deuteronomy, both today and in the coming weeks, I pray that through it you would thoroughly equip us for your good purposes. May your spirit teach us, Lord, rebuke and correct our hard hearts, Train us to discern what is good. And as your son said that the law of Moses testifies about him, may you enable us to see Jesus in Deuteronomy. And I pray this in his name. Amen. I have a confession to make. I am someone who cries in movies. And the thing is, it doesn't even seem to matter what the genre of movies is. It could be a romance, it could be an action, a sci-fi, even even a kid's movie. More often than not, there I am struggling to watch what's going on through the layer of liquid that's welled up in my eyes. And if there's ever any movie genre which is guaranteed to make me weep, it would have to be a Disney Pixar film. I don't know if any of you have watched a Pixar film before. There's a whole bunch of them, actually. But they seem to have this incredible ability to leave you in tears by the end of it. You know, whether it's, whether it's seeing Sully and Boo, or Bing Bong, or Carl and Ellie, or Andy and his toys. It's like whenever I watch one of these, and even if it's for like the 10th time, I have young children, we watch these movies a lot. And every time I, I can't help myself but, but be feeling feelings. And apparently I'm not the only one. See, if you type in why do Pixar movies uh, into Google, the number one result is why do they make me cry? I wonder if they make you cry too. One of the main, one of the main ways that Pixar does this uh, is through their music. It's through their soundtrack. You see, as we meet the different characters in each of these films, uh, the, the composers, they, they introduce a little melody, a little phrase, a little theme song. Uh, and then as we keep on meeting these characters and we hear these songs, we start, in the back of our mind, without even thinking about it, we start to associate the song, uh, this particular tune, with these characters or perhaps the relationship which they have with one another. And so then at particular key moments in these films, the composers, they bring back that theme song. And so then as, we watch, as we're watching that new scene, all those memories in the back of our head that have been formed for us through this song suddenly all impact at once and it heightens the intensity uh, for us. Now, in musical terms, this is called a reprise. Uh, now, if you've ever watched uh, Pixar's movie Coco, uh, can I have a show of hands who, who has watched Coco? Okay, only a couple. Uh, if, you, if you can, make sure you watch it. It's, it's an amazing film. 
Uh, and so in, in this particular movie, they, they use the song Remember Me as a reprise in this way. And see, this particular song, uh, I'm not going to sing, but actually maybe it goes like, Remember me, though I have to say goodbye, remember me. And then it goes on. And it's, it's quite, a, quite a beautiful kind of almost like a anthem sort of lullaby sort of song. It's, it's great. Anyway, and as is this song, it's performed uh, three times throughout the film. And each of them are at key moments in the story. And, and since most of you haven't watched it, I'm not going to give away what happens. Just go and watch it, okay? <laughs> but the thing is, the reprise of this song, Remember Me, in these scenes, it subconsciously connects us with each of the times that we've heard it in the past. And it invites us to remember what this song represented back then and then apply it to our present experience. A reprise can be a powerful thing. And as we journey today into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy, I want to suggest that Deuteronomy functions in a similar way. See, Deuteronomy is a reprise for the people of God. Deuteronomy, it's a story of God um, through Moses reintroducing the melody of God's salvation in the past and he plays it to a new generation as they move into the future. Deuteronomy is a reprise of God singing, remember me, to his people. A reprise can be a powerful thing. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it sees Israel at a significant time in their history. In the past, God had raised up a servant, Moses, to draw his people out of Egypt. And then as God promised, he miraculously, he powerfully delivered them from centuries of slavery. And then at Mount Sinai, he'd given them his commands, his guidelines for living as his people in his kingdom. And now God had brought them to the land that he promised as well. But in spite of all of this, all these events that took place over those months before, in that moment, God's people didn't trust him. Tragically, they were found unworthy to enter the land that God had given them. And then over the course of 40 long years, wandering in the desert, a whole generation of them perished. Now, at the end of these 40 years, Moses, he's now an old man. and I think it was, he's 120 or something. That's quite old. But he's still leading his people. And now Israel, again, they march up towards the edge of the promised land. It feels like history is repeating itself. And so we can't help but wonder, would this new generation, would they be found worthy of entering this land? Would they succeed where their ancestors had failed? Would the children be faithful when their parents were faithless. And it is here at this crucial point in Israel's history, overlooking that land that Moses, he delivers the words of Deuteronomy. Now, if you are 120, I can't speak from experience, but if you are 120, 
you know you're going to be dying soon. Um, you might be tempted to just give a farewell speech and say, you know, okay, on you go, have fun. But the thing is, Moses, he doesn't do that. In fact, he, he musters all of his strength and his courage and he gives a passionate sermon, exhorting, pleading, urging this new generation to live faithfully in the land that God has given them. He, he urges them to remember who God is and remember who they are. Remember God's mighty acts of salvation. Remember the promises that God has given you. Remember the failures of your ancestors and remember how God has called you to live in this land. Remember what is at stake. And so he concludes the book with this great command to choose life. Choose life. Deuteronomy is God's reprise for his people. And so as we journey through this book in the coming weeks, and hopefully in your growth groups as well, I want us to be listing out for those familiar melodies, those echoes of salvation history, and see then how God uh, uses them, how Moses crafts them together to then frame the future. As Cheryl excellently read out, Deuteronomy 1 begins like this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. Remember, they're at this point where they're about to enter the land for the second time. And then a few verses down, it continues, east of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance uh, into the hill country of the Amorites. And then the story continues. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading through these verses, I found this introduction a little bit surprising. Um, The reason why is because when... When Deuteronomy verse 5 says, you know, uh, Moses began to expound, explain the law, saying, you know, like in my mind, I'm like, okay, so maybe he's going to start saying, okay, the Ten Commandments or, or some other kind of guides or rules, you know, laws, it makes sense. But you see, that's not what Moses does. What does he do instead? He retells a story from their past. You could say he performs a reprise. In fact, the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, and they're long chapters. We only had about half of chapter one there. They're long chapters. And through these chapters, Moses is retelling Israel's history to the next generation. Deuteronomy begins with a lengthy reprise of the melody of the story of God's people. And as I've been reflecting on this, It's significant that the laws and commands, they don't begin until after this long period of time in the book. They don't begin until after Israel has had a chance to dwell, to own, to know what their history is and their story. It's as if God is saying to this new generation, you won't understand how you are supposed to act until you know who you are. 
You won't understand what living for me looks like until you remember your past, until you know your identity. And I think for all of us, our history, our story, our testimony, it's so central to us defining who we are. It's a central part of our identity. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem. And on one of the days, my, my group, we went and visited the Holocaust Museum. Now, as I'm sure you could imagine, it was a very sobering experience. The, uh, the curators of this museum have done all they can to collect all these memories, all these photos, all these like physical objects, clothing, little booklets, photo albums, all these things. And I've got this um, right behind me. You can see this is called the, um, the Hall of Names, where they're seeking to write every single name of those who perished. They've got close to three million there, and they've got space for three million more. And I remember my tour guide explaining uh, before we even went into this museum that this museum is significant. And in fact, all those who are, all the people, the foreign dignitaries and well-known people, uh, government officials who come and visit Jerusalem, they always get taken to this museum. Why? Because for many Jews today, remembering the Holocaust is essential to what it means to be Jewish. History forms a, a central part of our identity. Even if that history is marked by tragedy, and even if that history happened long before we were born. And so, before Moses gives God's law to the new generation, he dials back the clock 40 years and retells Israel's journey from, uh, from the exodus out of Egypt uh, to their journey to Mount Sinai and then from Mount Sinai up to the edge of the promised land. And we read in verse 2 that this journey took uh, from Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea took two, uh, 11 days. Moses said to them, You have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. God had miraculously brought them to this point. See, there were slaves in Egypt a few months ago. And now he has generously, powerfully given them this, this land to dwell with him. And now as they reach this land, God asks that they trust him. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Moses encourages them. He pleads with them. See, God's call here is towards boldness and encouragement. Last week, Mike Bird read some things from, uh, from Romans 15, which said all these things in the past were written so that we might learn endurance, so that we might learn encouragement. And that's exactly what Moses is saying here. Don't be afraid. You know, stick at it. Don't shrink back and don't be discouraged. But in the, in the events that followed, the Israelites become the exact opposite 
They become apprehensive and discouraged. Their recon of the land shows that, yes, it is actually a wonderful land that our God is giving us. But their fear of the other nations and what it will take to get there is so severe that they, they shrivel up into a ball and they complain. They say, the Lord hates us. He only took us out of Egypt so he could kill us here. And Moses, he rebukes this kind of thinking. He says, he says, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Even back 40 years ago, Moses was reminding Israel of their lived history. But it was no use. In spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. So close, and yet so far. Israel's lack of faith, it proved fatal. And God responds by declaring that no one from this unbelieving generation would enter this land. Except Joshua and Caleb, they were the two spies that that were actually encouraging the people to be faithful. Even Moses, for all of his mighty actions, he himself would not even be allowed to set foot in the promised land for his own sin and his lack of trusting God. Our passage today ends with God promising that the next next generation will actually inherit this land. But it won't be for a long, long time. And so God, he sends the Israelites away to begin their 40 years of wandering. And now 40 years later, a new generation of God's people, they arrive up in the plains of Moab. Right next, to the, uh, right next to the Jordan River. And if it feels a bit like this is sort of a deja vu, a bit familiar, you'd be right. Because the, the crucial question, I, I must imagine, in, in Moses' mind at this point is, have the Israelites learned from their history? Has this generation learned from their history? As that saying goes, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Have Israel learned from their past? Or will history repeat itself? Ultimately, we we need to read on ahead to Joshua and Judges and beyond to find the answer to that question. But generally, under the faithfulness of Joshua, who Moses hands hands the leadership over to, Uh, The people, that generation, do experience God's faithfulness uh, and blessing in the land as they do remain faithful themselves. But then beyond that generation, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's, it's just bad. 
And centuries after that point, the Israelites once again, they find themselves removed from the promised land because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, because of their evil. It seems the history did repeat itself after all, even if it took a little while. And then even when the remnant of Israel, they return from their exile back into the land, it's exciting, it's joyful, but in the end it ends up being bittersweet because not too long passes and the same old problems of the heart are creeping in again. You know, we're left with this heartbreaking conclusion that the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But then, after 40, sorry, after 400 years of intermission, in the silence, we begin to hear a familiar melody. God is performing another reprise. Just like how, how Pixar uses musical reprises to connect and heighten the emotional impact of the scene, as the New Testament opens, we hear the melody of God's salvation in the past as he plays it to a new generation. The Gospels begin with a reprise of God singing, remember me to his people and an invitation to trust him and see what happens next. And as this reprise, it plays, we are suddenly hit with a powerful wave of expectation as we recall Israel's story in the past, in the back of our heads. Is history going to repeat itself again or will this time finally be different? And what we find in the New Testament is amazing. As the Old Testament Reprise of salvation is heard louder and clearer than ever before. You see, just as Israel declared, uh, God declared Israel to be his firstborn son when they were in Egypt, and he brought them out from Egypt, we hear of another firstborn son who, after living in Egypt, is called back to lead his people. Just as God raised up Moses in the past, now we find another man, John, sent by God to draw his people into the wilderness. Just as Israel passed through the waters and emerged, hearing the voice of God to them at Mount Sinai, as Jesus is baptized, this Israelite emerges from the water, hearing the voice of God to him, saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Just as unfaithful Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus, the remnant of Israel, was tested in the wilderness for 40 days and yet remained faithful. Just as Moses passed the baton on to Joshua for Israel's future mission, now John the Baptist hands his mission of salvation onto the new Joshua, which when translated in Greek is Jesus. When God chose to save humanity, he could have chosen to do that any way he wanted to. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He could have done it any way he wanted to. But rather than write a brand new story, rather than compose a new soundtrack for salvation, it's amazing because he powerfully brought us back to the original melody of his chosen people. Jesus himself, he understood his mission as reprising the themes of the Old Testament and helping them find their end in him. In his Sermon on the Mount, he famously said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, I haven't come to kind of delete that, that musical track from your Spotify library. I have not come to, to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus came uh, so that God's yearning for his people expressed in his Old Testament would finally be fully known, fully received, fully realized. The identity and obedience called for in the law would now find its completion, its perfection in the salvation that Jesus brings. Christ came so that God's theme song of salvation and obedience that was left unresolved in the New Testament. At best, it was perhaps a sustained fourth chord if you're into music. It's unresolved. It's just wanting to like, just hit back to that root note. That unresolved song would now reach its glorious resolution in Christ. One of the things which I love about the movie Coco, and again, make sure you watch it, is that unlike uh, many other films that we see today, which uh, a lot of them seem to promote this idea that um, to find myself, to, to know who I really am, I need, to, I need to create that for myself. And it involves like breaking away from the expectation of my family, of my traditions, of my past, and just, just finding the real me. I mean, let it go, I feel like is the, is the anthem of, of our next generation. And that's exactly what that song is saying for us to do. But what I love about Coco in this film is as it uses this reprise, remember me, it actually leads us to see the value of finding our true selves in our past, finding our true selves in our family. And for us as God's people, remembering our past and our family as his people, it's vital for our sense of identity too. Yeah, that's why Moses, he spends three whole chapters in Deuteronomy reprising Israel's story to them. That's why Israel's theme song is played on repeat all throughout the Bible. These themes keep on going around and around and around. And that's why the Gospels reprise the same ancient song of salvation as they introduce us to our Saviour. I want to finish today by inviting you to reflect on your own sense of identity. What is it that makes you you. 
One way of thinking about it is you could ask, what is your defining moment? What are those defining moments in your life? For Israel, their defining moments were their salvation uh, from slavery and now their failure to enter the promised land in the future. Maybe for you, your defining moment is a, is a sporting victory you did as a teenager, or your defining moment is a particular achievement or, or a, a thing that you, you, you just got done that you never thought you'd be able to, and so you just keep looking back on it. Maybe you've got a, a trophy or some other thing in your, in your metaphorical pool room, and it, it's just like, oh man, that's, that's who I am. That was, that was my greatest moment there. But maybe if you're honest, what if your defining moment is actually one that's marked by tragedy or even trauma? The loss of a, of a friend, of a child, of a parent. Maybe your defining moment is a time of mistake and regret. I just, I, just, I just can't move on from that experience. Maybe your family has always had issues with, with drugs or alcohol or some other thing, that's some other pattern, and you just, you just can't help but feel that it's going to be your defining destiny too. For many people living in Ukraine, their present today experiences will almost certainly be defining moments for them in the decades to come. As I mentioned earlier, for Jews today, the Holocaust remains a powerful, defining moment for them, even if it, happens, even if it happened before they were born. In the same way, during this Reconciliation Week, we remember our Indigenous neighbours whose experience in the past remains significant for their identity and story today. What events define you? What's your defining moment? I'll give you just a moment to bring some thoughts together. These defining moments will often replay like a reprise in our heart. They can be powerful markers of personal identity. When we think of who we are, we can't help but bring these things along to help us understand that. You know, thinking about my own life, I can point to several things in the past which have been defining moments for me. Some of them have been good and some of them have been tragic. I've been reading through uh, this book by Brian Rosner called Known by God, where he uh, invites us to think about our personal identity, and particularly as people who are Christians who believe in Jesus. And as we've been thinking about identity formation here, um, Brian reflects, he says, there are many events which we feel define our lives. But if you're a Christian, 
then the Bible says that we have an even deeper marker of identity. When we believe in Jesus, the Bible says that we become part of God's family. We become his beloved children. We are sons and daughters of the King. And as we believe in Jesus, even more remarkably, we become united with him. We now are in union with our Saviour. And see, our core identity as God's children and our being in union with him now brings a defining moment to our life, a new defining moment to our life. You see, according to the New Testament, since we are united with Christ in the deepest sense, our defining moment is in something which happened 2,000 years ago, before we were even born. We died and we rose to new life in Christ. Galatians 2 expresses our defining moment in a lovely way. Uh, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And see, the life that I now live in the body, my present experience of life today, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the defining moment in our lives is our identification with the death and the resurrection of Christ himself, the ultimate expression of God's love. And it's this memory, it's this reprise of our story which defines us forever. It changes everything for us. I want to read these wonderful words from from Colossians 3. This, This theme is everywhere in the New Testament. Um, Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ. See, that's our defining moment. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what we are celebrating today as we remember the ascension. He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above then, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We are united. We are in union with Christ our Saviour. The most defining moments of his life are now the most defining moments of ours. And on this day, as we do remember the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection... Ephesians 2 says that God has now seated, he raised us to life and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. In a very real sense, we are are in that kingdom, we are in heaven now. That is our defining moment, even if it happened years before we were born. Now, of course, that's not to say that all of those things that we brought to mind before have no relevance or that we can do away with them. Of course, they are still very much part of who we are. But our new identity in Christ, it sets us on a different course. We have a new defining moment and and our lives, they have a new theme song. As we sung earlier today, the king of my heart, he is my song. And it should certainly affect the way that we think about ourselves. 
as I think about how we respond to this today. One way which Christians all throughout the centuries, all throughout the generations, have affirmed our identity, our union in Christ, is by declaring together the story of Christ's life, his death and his resurrection. For the past 1,700 years, Christ's people have stood and proclaimed the Apostles' Creed as a way of remembering, remembering who we are in him. As we reprise the the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, we join with generations and generations of God's 